I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending June 25th. This episode is brought to you by Power Integrations, Innovation in Power Conversion. The trade war with China is still ongoing. In the last few months, most of the news has been about everyone on every side of the conflict trying to ensure a steady supply of semiconductors. So it's easy to forget that the original technical issue was China's growing dominance in the commercial market for 5G wireless networking equipment. More to the point, there was suspicion in the West that Chinese 5G products would have inherent security risks. Someone who definitely hasn't forgotten that is Robert Spaulding. Spaulding was Senior Director of Strategy on the National Security Council until 2018. He is now the CEO of Semper, a company that just emerged from stealth mode with 5G technology aimed at addressing those security concerns and more. In today's episode, a discussion with retired Brigadier General and Semper CEO Robert Spaulding. He was joined by Semper CTO Marcus Owenby. We talked about the 5G market, Semper's 5G technology, 5G network security, and the data privacy of 5G subscribers. Before we get to our discussion about 5G, here's a rundown of some of the articles we've published in EE Times this week. We've got a pair of exclusive CEO interviews this week. In one, Alan Patterson interviewed Adam Kahn, the CEO of Akon Semiconductor about the use of diamond for ICs in the more-than-more era. In the other, Nitin Dahad actually went on the road for the first time in months and months to interview Simon Beresford Wiley, the new CEO of Imagination Technologies, at the company's spiffed-up headquarters just a bit north of London. We've also got stories about a new radar chip from Veyer Imaging for advanced driver-assist applications and vehicles, and a new accelerator from startup Quadric, designed for all computer vision workloads, both standard and AI-based. For all of these stories and more industry news and analysis, visit our website at eetimes.com. If you're on this podcast episode's webpage, look to your left and you'll see links to all of these stories we mentioned today. In January of 2018, former President Donald Trump started placing tariffs on Chinese goods, seeking to close the trade deficit with China. The trade war quickly morphed and expanded to include all sorts of political and business disagreements with China and Chinese interests. That included Huawei. From before the turn of the century, some Western companies have distrusted Huawei, suspecting the Chinese manufacturer of stealing intellectual property or IP. None of that kept Huawei from growing itself into one of the biggest electronics companies in the world, however. By 2018, Huawei was already the leading supplier of 5G equipment and was heading for further dominance. But then the trade war broke out, and as the trade war expanded in scope, Trump targeted Huawei directly, reviving the old accusations of IP theft and insisting that using Huawei network gear would be a security risk. He then mostly severed Huawei from the supply of the advanced ICs the company needed to build everything from 5G network equipment to 5G smartphones. The market for 5G equipment was wide open to competition again. In 2018, 
Air Force Brigadier General Robert Spaulding was working as Senior Director of Strategy at the National Security Council. He had developed, by this time, an understanding of the 5G market, and he drafted a memo that is as thorough an analysis of the market as it then existed as I've ever read. It included the commercial, political, economic, and military ramifications of how the market was developing. In the memo, Spalding proposed that the development of the most economical and secure 5G network would require a coordinated response, and he suggested three scenarios for accomplishing that. Two of those scenarios would rely on commercial interests to build such a network. The third option would rely on a network built by the government. The memo was leaked. U.S. communication service providers get enraged at the prospect of tiny municipalities building their own broadband networks. Here comes Spalding, sitting on the National Security Council, suggesting it was a valid option for the U.S. government to build the new 5G network. The service providers went ballistic. Now, it might have been just a coincidence, but a few days later, Spalding no longer had a seat on the Security Council. Now, that did nothing to solve the security issues in the 5G network, though. Spalding collected a team of people with security backgrounds and people with communication system expertise, and he founded Semper. The company has created a technology specifically to address security and access concerns. Now, you'll hear it described in detail in the interview. Spalding's bio describes him as the chief architect of the current national security strategy. And it says, Semper is the continuation of the vision he created for building a secure 5G infrastructure. Semper, let's note, is a completely commercial operation. Here's our interview with retired Brigadier General and Semper CEO, Robert Spalding. He's joined by Semper Chief Technical Officer, Marcus Owenby. My colleague, George Leopold, also sat in on the interview. Let's start by defining the scope of the problem we've chosen to try to solve. Well, you know, um, I think there's two pieces. One is critical infrastructure, just the fragility of the things that power our everyday digital lives. Half of that's the telecom network. The other half's the data center. We saw during uh, the bombing in Nashville, you know, how fragile that can be. And actually, Marcus was a part of the response on that. So, Marcus, maybe you can kind of talk about you know, what you dealt with uh, when the, when the AT&T um, core went down. Absolutely. Um, we ran, we, we continue to run multiple what are known as central offices throughout the United States as AT&T. And um, person felt like 5G was uh, going to kill a bunch of people, and uh, they decided to blow up a, a recreational vehicle right outside of our central office. Um, that person had been a contractor, so they knew where our switching gear was and perfectly placed the explosive device, and it took down our switching gear and took down our network and uh, removed 911 and mobility for the entire state of Tennessee, as well as all of the rural areas of the surrounding states because we had honed everything out of Tennessee. And that, that cost us about two weeks before we had 100% service restored across the board. So that was, you had 911 down, you had mobility, you even had um, internet down for some people and entertainment down. So pretty, 
pretty tough hit, uh, and it was a result of having centralized hub and spoke architecture. And if you remember Katrina, when when that hit uh, and the devastated the New Orleans, it took down the network, it took down the grid. So you know what happens when we lose connectivity and power, you know, are not good things. Um, and then you add that to you know we have rogue countries like North Korea, potentially Iran. Uh, getting a nuclear weapon, a high altitude EMP burst above, uh, you know, the United States could take possibly take down the grid. Now you've got Katrina basically from coast to coast. So critical infrastructure uh, is an enormous problem, but it's not just the telecommunications network. It's not just the grid. We saw in Florida where somebody tried to get into the water supply. So critical infrastructure was half of it. The other half is just data, data security, privacy. We know today that, you know, the Chinese Communist Party seeks to become the Saudi Arabia of data. Why? Because it drives AI and they want the ability to both monitor and influence populations, not just in China, but around the world. We also see this through, you know, all the social media platforms, big tech companies, their ability to essentially collect a lot of data on people. And and basically their goal is to influence your consumption patterns. Well, some people don't really want to be... manipulated in that way. And, you know, under 4G, it used to be that, you know, okay, you just don't sign up for cloud services, carry a flip phone or something like that. But in 5G, when the phone really becomes built into the city, so rather than the phone tracking you, now the city's tracking you. And that data, you really have no ability to stop that from being collected about you. So who's protecting your privacy and security and that? So critical infrastructure and data really turn out to be fundamental to the way we live, our society, our political system, our economy. And so, you know, when it comes right down to it, that's where you know, me as a B-2 pilot, really training for this 20, what I call 20th century warfare, which is really more about bombs and bullets. I recognized that, you know, the world was becoming more about ones and zeros and dollars and cents in terms of the ability to influence populations, the political system, society. And that, therefore, this critical infrastructure and data problem is probably the most foundational to preserving our democratic republic. And that's, that's the problem that we went after. Explain the system you devised and explain how it addresses the two key requirements you just mentioned, how it will stay up and running even under attack, and how it will ensure data security and privacy. Well, I mean, it's actually quite simple. We took a one half of the, um, of the equation in our infrastructure, which is a telecom network, and the other half of the equation of our infrastructure, which is a data center, and we mashed them together in one tower. And so if you look across the United States today, you know, we have in each tower, each Semper tower, a microcosm of the entire infrastructure. So one of the challenges that we have today is latency. And the latency is really, it talks about where that data is ingested from that antenna, goes through the radio into the data center. Really what's happening is you're going from the radio all the way, maybe hundreds of miles away to a data center. And that is... Um, that's creating latency. But what we did is we slammed all that together to protect it. And, and, and Marcus, you want to talk a little bit about, you know, the EMP hardening? Yeah, we took the time to create a very specific approach to encapsulating an entire G-node B, as we call it in 5G, in a protective layer of filters and steel and other, other methods 
such that uh, this every single one of our towers will in fact survive a high altitude EMP and we certify that. We take the time to certify every single tower to ensure that that's there. And it, it, you know, from there, we secure the 5G core itself. We've, we've hired and recruited a lot of uh, key thought leaders out of NSA mm-hmm. and they are hardening the 5G core from a protocol and uh, vulnerability perspective. Then, because these are all, as Rob said, de- uh, you know, micro data centers, when you deploy 100 of these, you've just deployed a distributed data center in a geographic area, which brings a new layer of resiliency and survivability. Because now you can't take out one data center. You can't bomb a central office. Okay, you take one of our Semper nodes offline, there's 99 others that have over 600 cores of compute available to you. So it's a, it's a game changer in terms of architecture and, and approach. One of the things that, that people don't talk a lot about when you're thinking about data security is that when you're looking geographically across the United States and you say, hey, we've got this big distributed hub and spoke network uh, along with these centralized data centers, the way, the, the paths to get into that data there are so many. And so what we try to do is close all those up. So this is fundamentally at each tower is a closed ecosystem. And so we've made it tamper resistant. So just like you, uh, you know, I remember having a piece of cryptographic gear, you drop that on the battlefield, it's designed to zero eyes if somebody tries to get into it. So this tower is designed the same way. It's designed to be protected from human hands unless we, you know, we have somebody that's authorized and certified. And then we go a step further and say, okay, not only do we want one person looking at that uh, tower to do maintenance, we want two so that they're monitoring each other and, and they've been vetted to be there. Today, when you go to the base of a tower, there's usually a small little office there where if you know that four-digit code, you can get in and touch the baseband, and that's really across the United States. So there's multiple places where you can get in, and what we've tried to do is confine the problem to a small area and ensure that it's very, very hard to have in, to, to impact it at all. In fact, we've even brought that nuclear enterprise uh, mindset that Rob talks about into our methods and procedures when it comes to operating remotely our system. Mm-hmm. There can never be one person just running the whole network. Uh, there can never be one person doing software updates. We're very careful about how we go about this. A national network of towers is likely to be expensive. What's your rollout strategy? This took us a while to figure out. Basically, we go to market just like a tower company. In fact, the prices are uh, comparable, if not even more attractive than a tower company, because a t- being a tower company is only half our business. The other half is being a data company, data center company. And so basically, you know, we're, we're out to buy, build towers for, you know, telcos, for industrials, for retail, anybody that needs connectivity. But we also bring that added aspect of we've got a data center associated with it. So, no, the, the price is actually uh, quite um, competitive with standard steel towers. Uh, but the better part is it we get to market much faster. You know, um, you know how, how long does it take a, a tower to go up? Usually, Marcus, compared to what we do. About 18 months. Uh, and in our case, it takes two weeks to put one of our towers up. Uh, additionally, we're not replacing, we're an overlay and an, and an enhancement to all the networks, right? 
a carrier, all the carriers want this type of technology. At AT&T, we spent years trying to figure out how to move compute just to our central offices and our MTSOs. Uh, that became the cost prohibitive. It, it was a billion dollar exercise. But because uh, the way we've designed this is so approachable and, and it, it's the same price as building a tower for a carrier, uh, it's, a, it's a paradigm shift. One of the characteristics of 5G is that the signals tend to be weaker and there are going to be a lot more towers necessary. Are you going to have a, a range of different size towers with different size data centers attached? First of all, um, when you talk about coverage and propagation issues, that's largely isolated to what we call the high band of okay. wave technology. So that's mm-hmm. the gigahertz and above. We're as, as an industry, we're deploying 5G in low band, which is 500 megahertz to five uh, to about 1.9 gigahertz. We're also doing it mid band, which is 1.9 to five gigahertz. You don't have the level of propagation challenges there. In fact, it's the same stuff we use for 3G, 4G. But you you do want to deploy our technology as an overlay. You have the ability. We have we have multiple form factors for this, right? Um, our largest configuration does house in every tower 600 cores. But as you step down in size, we have, uh, we have uh, what's called the base version where you would uh, plug that into existing infrastructure and connect it to an existing tower or to a distributed antenna system. Uh, you will start stepping down the server capacity such that your blades would drop down to probably 400 cores of compute, still a lot of compute, more than most people use in in lots of instances, but it it would step down. But as you do that, remember, this is a compute fabric, right? So our sempers see one another and they're generally gonna be placed closer to each other than than a MTSO or a regional data center or a major availability zone of an Amazon such that uh, you still maintain your performance that you're looking for in terms of latency. Yeah, and we're not, we're not looking to replace what's there. What we're looking to do is augment. augment. So if you look at yes. the current map of the United States, most of our processing is centralized and co-located, mostly on the east and west coast. And mm-hmm. what we're trying to do is fill in the spaces in between with added compute that really brings that uh, full capacity of 5G to communities that are underserved today. So uh, the real thing with 5G is we've been talking about it as a radio technology. Well, 5G really to really be realized is a combination of the radio and the compute. And what we've done is taken the compute and slammed it right up against the radio. So that now when you have a low latency radio, we pair that with low latency compute so that you get the ability to have autonomy and AI at the speed that the radio is able to handle it. What are the first use cases? Marcus, coming from AT&T FirstNet, I mean, talk about the, the, the push to talk. That's really oh, cool. Yeah. So um, it really, it gets back to the fact that our, as telcos, we're, we're kind of beholden to our legacy investment strategy, right? We can't make a bunch of changes. We got to take advantage of all of our sunk costs and sunk investments. So we we carriers. I'm not a carrier anymore, but <laughs> old habits die hard. They do. I'm a bellhead at my core. They tend to follow that hub and spoke architecture, right? So that means my application is probably hosted in an internal telco availability zone. 
And then as an end user at a cell site, at an AT&T cell site, for instance, and I'm a FirstNet subscriber perhaps, I've got to talk to my buddy that's also at the cell site. He's a first responder. Well, for that push to talk session to initiate, it's going to leave my phone. It's going to travel to the mobile telephony switching office. It's going to travel to a backbone center, the central office. Then it's going to go to one of the, the internal telco availability zones. It's going to do its processing. Then it's going to take those hops all the way back to talk to my friend. And, you know, that's about a second. Well, when in a critical situation, if help is seconds away and my problem is milliseconds, my, what counts is milliseconds response, that's, that's not a good customer experience. And um, we've struggled as, a, as an industry to support that UX of I need, I need quick response and I don't just need voice. I need video yeah. and I need X axis, a Z axis and I need situational awareness because maybe there's something that's happening at a, at a macro scale that's blowing. Maybe there's a storm blowing in, right? I'm in a hurricane, there's rain bands and there's other things going on. There's a tornado, right? If I don't have that up to the minute access, that's going to limit my ability to respond and protect my citizenry. So in being able to deploy uh, compute out on the edge securely and safely and understand that, you know, nobody's touched that, what we found, the epiphany we had was, you know, the, all the, the companies out there, you know, particularly the, the big data companies, the centralized data centers, they're trying to solve what is fundamentally a physics problem with technology. In other words, they're too far away. They need to get closer. And right now they don't have the infrastructure to get closer. So, you know, the, the epiphany we had was we had created an ability to basically fix a physics problem with a physics solution, which is, you know, a distance. It sounds like you're also recapitulating the emerging strategy for the Internet of Things, which is to, to distribute computing resources closer to the edge and put AI resources out there. Now, if, if anything needs processing and security at the edge, it's IoT applications, whether it's people hacking nanny cams or our connected cars. So that 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 is actually you're you're um, right there with us. So, you know, when you think about what we're building, we're not building for today. Today is the world of the smartphone. We're building for tomorrow. And it's exactly what you're saying. And so a big portion of the way we've designed our compute is around real-time computing. In other words, processing the data as fast as it comes over the radio. So that requires a little bit different architecture. And so our hardware CTO who designed the Semper Tower really has been, uh, you know, he was an architect on Cray 3, 4, and 5. He's been working on high-performance computing his entire career. He, um, he founded SRC uh, Computing with Seymour Cray and then went on to lead the company after, uh, after he, he passed away from a car accident and you know that I met him when I was in the Department of Defense and he was working on high performance computing for those types of applications just like you're talking about the DOD currently runs on aircraft um, and now we're taking that technology and we're, we're coming up with ways that we can take what's coming off a streaming camera you know so and like a facial recognition algorithm we can run that in real time and really provide facial recognition based point of sale but we're going a step further because we're saying well people don't want their the fact that they're going into the store buying something they don't want that data released so what we're doing is anonymizing that data so really returning like a 
like a token so that that can make a transaction. So it really becomes, you know, part of this fabric of the smart city, the smart factory, smart agriculture, you know, advanced medicine. So you're, you're taking a, uh, an ambulance and you're doing advanced diagnostics on testing that's, that's being done right there in the ambulance to get the best kind of outcomes for people. That's the kind of applications that we're really building this for. General and Marcus uh, George Leopold, is it your sense that the, that the the early 5G and edge deployments are not secure? Uh, it's a function of architecture that you've explained, and the business model here is that you would overlay your solution onto what looked to us to be pretty unsecure networks. That's correct. Uh, there, I mean, every month we hear about the latest vulnerability. We had we were. Uh, updated just in April with a significant vulnerability in 5G network slicing. Network slicing is key to uh, some of the scalability around 5G. Uh, we are deploying a secure version of network slicing in our network to, to make sure that that's a game changer. Most of the technology has been developed by the Chinese. In fact, uh, the, the, the Chinese for the most part, chair most of the um, most of the boards within the 3GPP standards making body, particularly the securities boards. So when you when you think about the architecture of 5G, it's actually been built to be an open system. And you know our concern is it was built to be open so that people could collect data from the system. And and so our goal is to basically take an inside out approach to data. So we focus at the data layer. In other words, we want to anonymize and encrypt the data and then begin to wrap security around it rather than what we've done to date, which is basically try to apply a Band-Aid to sucking chest wound. And with 5G, not only do we not secure it, we, we make the connectivity, it goes you know, to an, a, an order of magnitude higher. So from 10,000 devices per square mile to 3 million, now you really got a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of holes to plug. So our goal is really to start at the data and then move out and make sure the entire thing was secure end to end to provide, just like you say, an overlay over the system. So it, we, we just don't think that 5G is viable in a world where we want privacy and data security. It's one where everybody gets their data collected about them. If that's what you're looking for, then 5G is a perfect technology right now. Yeah, so we have a, uh, a process. We have a framework. I'm not going to give all the details because it's secret sauce, but we look at when Rob talks about attack vectors, there's four key dimensions. And then under each of the dimensions are seven other dimensions. And then there's another analysis we do. But you start with the user equipment. Then you're looking at the radio access network. Then you're looking at the uh, at the X-Hall, right? What moves from that radio access network across the ground or over the backhaul. And then the 5G core itself. So we're running assessments across multiple dimensions in that as well as the code base itself because every time you make a change you introduce a potential vulnerability there and standards are constantly being updated and customers are constantly being updated it's a lot of work but um we're confident that our process is probably industry we know cyber criminals are attacking relentlessly and they target the part of the system that seems the most vulnerable it sounds as if you've got a secure tower and a secure data center with it, and that seems to leave the handset as the most vulnerable part of the system. Well, I mean, so when we look at the handset, it's a part of the ecosystem. 
And so we, we did look at the device ecosystem. And in fact, we, um, we looked at and have in our roadmap an idea for a very low, uh, a, a lightweight uh, handset that, does, that leverages the processing power that's in the tower to make it go. But in reality, again, we're looking towards the, the cameras and all the sensors that are connected. And so those tend to uh, be lightweight as they are, as you already noted. And so our goal is basically to take those lightweight uh, things and then ensure that the data that coming off those is secured, you know, when it gets to, to, to the tower for processing. So yeah. our focus is really on, um, you know, IOT, but you're right, you know, the, the handset can be a big problem. Now, you know, if you look at our tower, it really looks like a 40 foot iPhone. It, it is in itself, all the pieces of an iPhone is within our tower. You have the compute, you have the radio network and it's self-contained. And once you get outside that, yes, you run into vulnerabilities. And so what we've tried to do, if you, if, and for our, some of our customers that want the most security, we're gonna recommend you have a very, very lightweight uh, from a processing perspective, device so that if it does if you do lose it you don't care about it really all the processing most of the processing is done at the tower so that's the way we look at it from a device perspective but that's going to move away to iot we think very rapidly yeah i think that's a that's a really important concept right it's this notion i think it was introduced by peter diamandis in his book bold probably seven or eight years ago it's this dematerialization of things um, I don't know that the smartphone, as, as we've experienced, it will really be part of your life in 10 years. I think all your, your life, because 5G becomes a computational fabric, it, it starts getting woven into my glasses, right? I get the AR glasses and then my, my clothing has sensors in it. So it does a lot of the detection. So maybe I don't need this big, heavy, clunky Garmin watch anymore because my shoes and my and they talk and give the biometric information. So it's going to be a game changer. We're empowering that revolution by putting the smarts in the network. And if we can get there, that will diminish the attack vectors in a lot of ways. And we, we've also have techniques built into our towers so that if we do have processing out there, there's some hardware-based uh, methodology that goes along with our software to enable us to, to do that in a, in, a, in a fairly secure manner. So yeah. it doesn't necessarily uh, mean that all the processing is going to come from that tower. But we, the way we looked at this was as an ecosystem. We didn't look at it as, hey, I just want to you know, do the device or, hey, I just want to do the radio. We looked at the entire thing end to end. We did. Okay, so, so maybe we give up our smartphones and go to something lighter and we move to smart eyeglasses and smart wearables. When we do that, all of our data moves someplace else out of our personal control. Now, we all know that there are multiple government agencies that can walk into any company, invoke national security, and demand that the company hand over the data. So my question for you is, What's the data privacy response built into your system? Well, that's a good question. We're not building our our towers with back doors, yeah. and we're not a carrier. We're an infrastructure provider, and our goal is basically to provide the most secure systems. You know, I think we feel that the government, if they want to collect data on people, let them put the devices out there to collect their own data. Uh, they don't need a DVR to rewind your life 
based on the the devices that you that you own. And so I think that's one of the things that we've we're not we're not going to fashion a, a backdoor into our system because then it could be hacked into by foreign governments. Um, we, you know, fundamentally, we believe that privacy and data security are foundational to democracy, and we have law enforcement. You know, if they want to go collect data on people, they have the means, they have the resources, they're given them by the federal government to have their own separate, just like, you know, um, the the FBI used to put wiretaps. They used to Mm -hmm. put um, recording devices when they were trying to, you know, catch criminals, let them go get a warrant, let them put out their own things. They don't need to have the things that we use on a day-to-day basis be the means that they conduct surveillance on criminal activity. That, I, we believe, foundational to our democracy, that as you've moved into this globalized world where internet connectivity is so prolific that if we're going to preserve our ability uh, to be free, then giving somebody the ability to collect data on us and then use that data to uh, to move our perceptions in ways that are imperceptible to us is completely counter to the principles of the Bill of Rights in our constitution. And so if you think about it from a second amendment perspective, think about this. If you, if you, if a gun is in, in our constitution there to provide the citizenry, a the means to resist an oppressive government. And if the government has a means or foreign governments have the means to collect data on you and then move your perceptions in ways that you don't know you're being oppressed or you Mm. may not even know who your oppressor is, then the Second Amendment really becomes less and less relevant in this digitally connected globalized world. And so what what we you know, what I came to the conclusion as a warfighter, you know, I, I. I raised my right hand. I said, I swore, I I swore to uphold and defend the constitution. The constitution as considered by Alexander Hamilton and the other framers did not consider this idea of a globalized world and in a hyper-connected internet that in, in, that meant the data is being collected about you that you had not, no control over. And then you were being fed information in ways to influence your perceptions. That is not that's not protected in our current iteration of the world. And so our goal was to kind of take those principles of our constitution, infuse them into our technology, because I think that's what Apple tr- started to do with the iPhone. You know, and then we got the iCloud. Now we've got the iCloud in China. And now we, now we have the, China, the Chinese able to influence Apple in terms of their apps. And so our idea was to take those principles and build it into the fabric of our digital world so that now we could kind of ensure that there's a balance between the power of the state or foreign states and the citizenry. That's what's, that's what's missing in, in our society today. That was Semper CEO Robert Spaulding. With him was Semper CTO Marcus Owenby. The fourth voice you heard was my EE Times colleague, George Leopold, assisting with the interview. Spaulding is also the author of the 2019 book, Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. We have a link to that on the podcast episode webpage. The trade war with China is of course still ongoing. The tariff situation was always a mess. Trump applied his original tariffs under the wrong belief that China would pay the tariffs, not U.S. purchasers. Days ago, 
The Federal Reserve determined that the tariff war has led to the loss of billions of dollars, with importers and exporters alike deliberately providing falsified economic data, making it impossible to get an accurate value for the deficit. The Fed concludes that that part of the trade war is pretty much a failure. As for the 5G network equipment market, that was not only upended by the trade war, it is also getting roiled by an unrelated trend toward open systems. Huawei, Ericsson, and Nokia were the top three 5G network gear vendors, but they were all providing mostly proprietary technology that did not work well with the equipment from their competitors. There was already a movement toward the development of open 5G networking equipment, other vendors, all offering open and therefore interoperable systems, would naturally undercut companies with proprietary technology. The trade war seems to have accelerated that trend toward open network equipment, also referred to as open radio access networks or just plain ORAN. John Walko has been covering that trend for EE Times. And of course, the trade war has expanded to encompass the entire semiconductor industry. That technology rivalry between the U.S. and China remains hot. Earlier this week, the Biden administration blocked the sale of a South Korean semiconductor manufacturer, Magnachip, to an investment company backed by Chinese money. We've got a story by George Leopold that explains why that was a pretty unusual maneuver. The U.S. is trying to encourage more companies involved in all aspects of the semiconductor industry to set up more operations domestically and that's following decades of free market economics wedded to free market politics that led to manufacturing being set up just about anywhere but the U.S. We've been reporting on the money Congress is dedicating to the reshoring effort. Interestingly, we just published a story by Alan Patterson on how Global Foundries has just decided to expand operations in Singapore. Stay tuned. This is all likely to keep getting weirder before it gets better. And that is it for the weekly briefing. Thank you for listening. We would like to thank the sponsor of this episode, Power Integrations. Visit this episode's webpage to find links to videos from Power Integrations explaining green energy, gallium nitride semiconductors, and other subjects associated with advanced power technology. Power Integrations, innovation in power conversion. This podcast is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website at eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned. The weekly briefing is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.